Hi everyone, welcome. Uh, I'm Tom Emelson, I'm a radiologist down at Olympic Park um, and this is Chris Bradshaw who works at Olympic Park Sports Medicine Centre and has got a long history of uh, uh, AFL uh, doctor experience uh, working with four clubs? Four clubs, yeah. Four clubs. Which is a bit scary, but anyway. And he's currently with Collingwood. So uh, um, today we've got uh, essentially a case-based uh, case based review of some conditions. Oh dear. <laughs> um, and so we'll be showing some imaging, we'll be talking about the clinical side of things. Uh, feel free to ask questions, the more questions the better, more interactive it is. So just pop your hand up and we'll, uh, we'll answer it, don't worry about pauses and things like that. And, s and some of the cases are going to be really, um, they're going to be like, you know, a bit unusual and some of the cases are just going to be garden variety, common garden variety cases as well. But um, as Tom says, just stop us and ask questions and we'll try and make it as clinically relevant and as radiologically relevant for you as possible. So we'll see how we go. So we'll start off the first case. So, so I, I work for Collingwood right now, but I did nine years at Geelong through some pretty good years down at Geelong. And so a couple of the cases are from the Geelong days. And this, this first one demonstrates a, a fairly common morphological, radiological condition and some of the manifestations. So this, this was a, a guy who's, who's permitted me to use his images and his name and stuff. So James Kelly was, I think this is about five years ago, six years ago. He presented early in the season with groin pain and basically very, very quickly in April ground to a halt. Um, basically had a full hand of pubic overload signs. So had the, uh, had the, uh, the pubic symphysis overload and what have you. Um, he had tenderness on his pubis, he had all the positive um, pubic symphysis tr stress tests on the end of the bed and what have you, um, but he also had, particularly on the right side, a positive hip signs, a positive fader test, positive faber test, um, a little bit of an irritable ligamentum teres test as well. But the, the point is that the pubic overload was, was probably one of the, the commonest causes of groin pain about 15 years ago, and the patient population hasn't changed, but we just don't make that diagnosis as much anymore. But, um, but he presented the same way. So pubic overload, classically in the olden days, didn't cause people to miss games, it just caused them to lose their speed and their agility and their performance, and they got a little bit of post-game um, post symptoms as well. So we scanned him, and sure enough, he had some right greater than left. Can you guys see those images okay? So right greater than left, pubic overload. Um, you can see the, the, the bone edema, and Tom might want to point out some of the features of that. So uh, this is a coronal section. This is one of those fat sat images that you'll see. This, there's a variety of different names they might have. It might be stir or fat sat. Essentially, when the fat that you can see around is black or dark, uh, you know it's a fluid sensitive sequence. So you can see that the urine in the bladder is really bright white. Okay, So that's pure water. It's really bright. What we look for, uh, we often go to these first, is because the, the, the the pathology is often the bright area, okay? Um, and so we often look at these. The other sequences, which were more anatomical, you look at the actual structure of things. And we can show a couple of sequences, a couple of other images like that. But essentially, uh, what I want to draw your attention to here is the uh, pubic symphysis here. And we can see bone marrow edema on each side, okay? There's a regularity of the surface there. And you'll also notice there's a little bit of um, uh, the, the, the disc becomes degenerate and pops out the top and the bottom. Uh, the adductor longus tendons attach at the front of the pubic symphysis, just under that area. And uh, 
they, they become uh, tendinopathic with, the, with this disc and with the overload of the adductor muscles and become quite frayed and delaminated. So uh, this is just one snapshot there, just showing that edema in the pubic symphysis. Okay, so if we scroll backwards a little bit further, we see that he's got, well, Tom will describe the morphology of the hips, but if you look at the, the white stuff, the, the, that's the fluid, you can see on the right-hand side, he's, he's got a little bit of a hip effusion relative to the, to the left-hand side. And often in these broad field views, we get to see that, that where the pathology lies. So he's got some right hip signs, and Tom might show you the, the other salient features of those scans. Yeah, so this is, um, we're looking primarily through the, the, through, through the hips here. And uh, what we want to see here is the morphology of the acetabulum uh, relative to the, uh, to the femoral head. And here we can see that this is really quite sharp and pointed. So this is what you, you hear um, uh, in terms of femoroacetabular impingement or FAI. We've got a pincer deformity, which just means that the, the, the acetabulum is overcovered. And you can imagine with, a, uh, with amateur, uh, well, with any active person, um, amateur athletes and professional athletes, overwork of this ball and socket joint with that uh, overhanging acetabulum is going to cause abutment. Okay? Uh, you'll also notice that this femoral head here doesn't, what you'd like to see is a bit more concavity between the head and the neck. And you can see it at the undersurface that it's quite concave, but we lose it up the top here. So that's where we're talking about this cam lesion. Okay? So essentially it's asymmet asymmetry and uh, you don't have a perfect ball and socket uh, fitting together. Okay, oh, actually before I do that, I'll stop that. Um, so he was treated, like, so he basically, that was like round four of the season, I think, and he was he almost ground to a halt. We basically decided to inject his, his, his right hip joint because of his hip signs, and then he played the season out probably under a bit of duress at about 85%, and then at the end of the season he um, had his right hip arthroscoped, and then two weeks later, had his left hip arthroscoped, and within, within eight weeks of having had his left hip arthroscoped, he was actually flying and, and back to normal. Now, the point of this is that if he had have been back in the late 80s and early 90s, he would have got a hernia repair of some sort. He would have got a, a, a sportsman's hernia repair. And 15 years ago, he would have got a five-month rehabilitation for his osteitis pubis. And so by addressing the hip joint pathology, which underlines stuff, so he was really ground to a halt. He lost his power of kicking. He lost his speed of running. He lost his, his, his agility. And then the next season, this is how he presented back to us. Um, so he's number nine. This is, this is well, you see him as number nine. That's not him. That's Mackie. And then this is the way that James could, could move on the football field afterwards. So it's really interesting that the same patient would have got different treatments in different eras, but we're now a lot, lot more comfortable with the hips causing things such as back pain and groin pain and, and, and those things. So mm -hmm. I think Tom's got a little bit more of an overview regarding... Oh, uh, no, the imaging? No, this is... Yeah, there you go. Yeah. So here's... We've just got another case. Um, uh, we do a lot of MRI at Olympic Park. Um, uh, usually you'd start with an x-ray and I've got an example of some x-rays later on but I just thought I'd show you some of the features that we look for on MRI for femoroacetabular impingement and essentially depending, I think if you speak to a lot of clinicians uh, many of them will say there's not a normal hip out there there's you're not going to have a perfect sphere going into a perfect socket uh, and that's where these problems arise but there's still a lot of uh, research that needs to go into it um, and as Chris says there's an evolving knowledge base and, and treatment base for, for it but some of the things that we're looking for, um, this is a very big cam lesion here. Um, so we can see that there's this big overhanging cam lesion at the front uh, where there's going to be uh, 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 
where you've got reactive bone growth from the, from the abutment. Uh, that almost looks like an osteophyte, but we, this is in quite a young person. There wasn't any significant... We can see the cartilages here that are really, really well, well pres preserved. Um, here we've got uh, a few more. This is the same, same patient. Uh, and here we've got another form of that pincer deformity. And essentially, you can just see that that acetabulum is overhanging. Um, there is a little bit of cartilage loss here, which we can just see um, with that middle image. You can just see that there's some thinning and irregularity there. This is quite a young patient, so their cartilage really should be quite, quite smooth and pristine. And then the, the image on the right is when uh, you get full thickness cartilage loss, you start getting that joint fluid pushed into the underlying bone. And that's when on this fat sat sequence or this fluid sensitive sequence, we see a little focus of sub, uh, sub uh, uh, chondral bone edema in the back of the uh, femoral head. Uh, so, I guess we're talking about uh, FAI or femoroacetabular impingement and just a few of the other things that we can have. But the main issue with it, with it is, is that those uh, unusual biomechanics in the, or um, not perfect biomechanics cause increased wear and essentially we're getting uh, increased chondral loss and in the process you're getting uh, increasing pain and limited movement and function of that joint. The other point to make is that, that FAI is often a morphological diagnosis, so there's lots of footballers running around at the age of 28 who've got the morphological features of FAI who are asymptomatic because their, their control is good and their, their gluteal control and all their, all their biomechanics is okay. Mm. So it, it is a, a morphological diagnosis that becomes clinical later on, and we do think that FAI probably does predispose to that osteoarthropathy that happens later on. So, um, but it is essentially what we see on x-rays, but it's not necessarily the clinical. You need to match the clinical and the, and the radiology up, I guess, is the point. Okay. Is there regional variation? I had a 26-year-old um, top-end soccer player, took two orthopods, two sports conditions here, gone back to England, mm. recommended surgery here for three similar scenarios, yep. recommended over there uh, rehabbing the thing. Said that there, he was kind of quoted with the, the sort of sports condition orthopod over there, who's going to say their recent Yeah. Um, sort of there is a massive regional variation. So over in, in England, there's Phil Gilmore's groin, which is a, essentially a, a hernia repair. And anyone who's got any pain between their knee and their nipple basically gets a, a Gilmore's groin. Uh, when I worked in England for a couple of years with a soccer team over there about 10 years ago, um, you know, like I was hip happy because I'd been educated over here and had seen the evolution over here. And I actually did an inventory of groin pain um, that every groin pain that presented in my clinical practice was about 20. 20, sorry, 220 cases in about two years. And I thought I'd see lots of osteitis pubis um, and I thought I might see a few hips, but actually 50% of the patients were, were hips. That, and I think of them, there was 20 of them that had Gilmore's groin operation and hadn't got better and actually were underlying hip stuff. But that I was a sort of a lone wolf in that respect you know, over there. I was the only one making those hip diagnoses. And at Collingwood, like, you know, at Richmond maybe 15 years ago, we would have done one hip scope a year. And at Collingwood last year, we had... I think 13 players referred to John O'Donnell and nine had hip scopes and one from another club who we knew might have been coming to us had a hip scope as well. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so there is this massive regional variation and even in Australia, like if you live north of the Murray you used to get um, an adductor release and if you live south of the Murray you get a, a, a conservative management. That was even in Australia like 15 years ago. There's a guy up in Sydney do doing adductor releases and it's crazy, the same patient population, same patients and totally different treatments. And the scary thing is that the hernia repair guys got better and the obturated nerve releases got better and the, the conservative management ones got better as well. It's, that's the scary thing. They, uh, so is your evidence anecdotal or is your evidence 
My, mine was basically an inventory of, of, of ones that I'd seen. So that, that was like a, a, a 220 consecutive cases of groin pain. And, and I genuinely thought we'd have a lot of pubic overloads and not that many hips. And when I sort of crunched the numbers at the end, there was lots of hips, and that was surprising. Um, but it probably just shows my own bias. I mean, we look for hip stuff, and if we find hip signs, then, then the only way we'll make a diagnosis of primary pubic overload is if you can clear the hip. So if they've got hip signs and you can clear it with treatment, then they've still got pubic overload. So in James's case, he had groin pain and he had radiological osteitis pubis, but when you put a local anaesthetic in his hip joint, all those signs went away. It's very interesting that, how the hip joint feeds that. Yeah. We even had a guy at Geelong who had FAI that we, we, that we actually recruited with FAI. Had this back pain that we thought was disky and we got an opinion from the AIS, got an opinion from someone in Melbourne, and we said that it, everyone agreed it was a disc and he wasn't getting better, so we thought we'd fix his hips in the meantime. And he had one hip done and his, his back got halfway better and he had his other hip done and his back got totally better. So he had hip-related back pain, which is... Yeah. How sensitive is the X-ray that you looked at the PA? I think that, well, X-ray is pretty good, isn't it, for FAR? Mm. Yeah. Well, most, most orthopods would, would use it. Um, uh, they prefer an X-ray than, than an MRI. MRI is so sensitive, so you're always going to see a little bit of ridge or a little bit of loss of that concavity at the femoral head neck junction. Uh, I can't remember the last time I reported an MRI that didn't have some sort of high signal in the, in the antero-superior part of the labrum. Um, it's very unusual to have a, a normal uh, imaging of a hip, but that's where it's important that when you're aware of all your clinical signs and you're doing appropriate examination, so that exactly as Chris says, you're going to marry up those, uh, marry up those, uh, um, the the imaging with your with your findings and, and your clinical impression. In terms of, yep. So you, you could just put most most radiology practices if you put query FAI will do the appropriate ones but the main view that you're asking for is a done view yep. um, <coughs> because uh, it turns it turns the uh, the axis of the uh, the proximal femur to a, to an angle where you can see the prominence of the prominence of the uh, x-ray I can show you um, I'll c come up and I'll show you an x-ray shortly um, so this is the way we essentially divide it up uh, and this is purely an imaging point of view, so this isn't, w this isn't a clinical side of things. But essentially we look at the acetabulum, uh, which is what they used to call pincer impingement. But essentially we're looking at overcoverage, and it either can be that the whole socket's overcovered, or part of it can be overcovered. So general or focal. Uh, and I'll show you a couple of x-rays just to show you a couple of ideas about that. And then the femur, we're looking for an osseous bump, but then you're also looking for femoral version um, and the angle between the femoral neck uh, and shaft, okay, so coxa vara and coxa, um, particularly coxa vara where it becomes more straight, okay, so rather than that. The, uh, the femoral version is quite difficult to look at uh, on x-ray, um, but the other ones you can get a sense of just with a plain x-ray series. Uh, so the normal hip x-ray, we never see it. It's about 5% um, <laughs> of the population. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, there's just some lines here that um, are quite important. Here, the, this line here is pointing to the epiphysis. Uh, sorry, the growth plate, um, and you'll notice that there is the back of the acetabulum and it should actually go through the centre of that, that femoral uh, head. Uh, you should see a little bit of uh, gap between the edge of the acetabulum, which should be flat or slightly, slightly, slightly inclined up, 
um, or slightly inclined down. But essentially you're looking for a flat weight-bearing portion of the acetabulum. Uh, and then you've got this ischio, the, what we call the teardrop sign or the, the uh, ischio-inguinal, uh, sorry, ischio-iliac line, um, IIL. And essentially you're wondering about whether or not the head is sitting further in. Okay, so we'll just uh, have a couple of examples here. So generalised overcoverage. Um, what we've got uh, here is that you've got the femoral head coming in and the acetabular fossa going past that, that line there, okay? Um, and here you've got a protrusio. They're just fancy words for the femoral head sitting too, uh, very close into uh, the deep aspect of that acetabulum. Okay, and it's just a, it's just a spectrum. But essentially, uh, if we go back to the normal one, um, you should see the acetabular fossa, which is this little space here where the ligamentum teres sits. Um, there should be a gap there, and the femoral head shouldn't be, and the acetabular fossa shouldn't be going past that ilioinguinal line. Okay, so there we can see it coming forward. And then we talk about focal coverage. Essentially, we're looking at the two walls of the acetabulum here, and here, this is figure of eight sign. Okay, um, that means that the anterior wall is coming closer to the posterior wall, so it means that the acetabulum is overcovered anteriorly or retroverted. So you can imagine that if it's got more bone anteriorly and you've got your uh, and you're moving the uh, femur then it's going to be continually bumping in that, in that regard. And then you get the opposite with posterior overcoverage. You just get a nice wide angle between these two. And remember we said before that that posterior line needs to go through the centre of that femoral head. And you can see it's going out the other way. Anyway, it's just, this is, even by, um, a lot of radiologists wouldn't be, <laughs> we wouldn't be uh, reporting on this stuff. But this is the theory behind it from, a, from an imaging point of view. All right, so here we go, cystic cam lesions. So here's the done view that you're asking about before. You can see that we lose this concavity, okay? This is the femoral head, we've got the neck, you've got a nice concavity there. Here you can see this nice bump, and what we've got here is we've got some secondary cystic change that sits underneath there. Uh, this is quite significant, you can see it on, on MRI with uh, fluid and, and cysts in, the, in that part of the head. And that really does up your uh, suspicion of saying, you know, there's probably gonna be some femoroacetabular impingement in this area, just because you're going to see the bone edema and, and things like that. But once again, you've got to marry it up clinically. Uh, and then subsequent to this, when you get tears of the labrum, we can sometimes see paralabral cysts. And sometimes we can see intrasubstance cysts that sit in that torn labrum, okay? And some orthopaedic surgeons uh, that I've spoken to su suggest that when there's cysts there, they're more likely to be symptomatic, but I'm not quite sure what you'd... Again, it, it I'm just sure, depends. Yeah. Yeah. Not, you're not sure. All right. Any so questions? Okay, so this, the second case is um, a case of another footballer. This is in 2009, and this is a guy who, in round 11, came off and complained of basically... Well, he had, he had groin pain. It was really sort of adductor pain. And we had no, he had no incident, couldn't remember hurting himself, and we basically treated him conservative, conservatively, and he had an MRI scan, because that's what we do the day after a match, just to have a look and see. And it was reported as being normal by the guys down in Geelong. So we, um, we treated him conservatively, had a corticosteroid injection into his hip joint that didn't really help him. So he played three games and in the end was no good at all. Like he really wasn't playing as well as he should have been playing. And so we decided to rest him and strengthen him. He missed a few matches and mm. got, got better. Um, he, re he returned to play and initially he improved. Um, and then he had another incident where he went for a mark and put his knee into the back of someone's back and then twisted his hip and, and felt like he'd torn his groin again. Um, 
so you couldn't play round 21 and on the, the Monday morning he and I, he being the sort of person that he is and very sort of um, self-confident and thinks he's going okay, um, so we, we sat down and had a look at the scans and we, we actually found on pretty much one cut. Now this is what Tom was talking about, his, his, his right hip in fact, his other hip, his non-injured hip has been asymptomatic and yet he's got some bone edema and a little subchondral bone marrow edema on his right side. But his left side, we had a look at that, me and Stevie, and thought that didn't look normal, so we took it cap in hand to the radiologist, and the radiologist had a look at that and felt that there was some abnormal signal in that fovea area around where the ligamentum teres attaches. So can you just see there? It's, once again, as Chris is saying, that, that wide view shot is really helpful because you can see what's different between the two hips. They've both got a little bit of fluid, yeah? That's different, but that's also different. This is the symptomatic hip. Sorry, that's the symptomatic hip, the left side, the right side wasn't. So take your MRI reports with a grain of salt in terms of when you are, um, if it doesn't marry up with what you're thinking clinically. And you can also ask for a reread re from your radiologist as well um, because sometimes you may have just said hip pain and then you <coughs> see the patient again with a result for the MRI. You re-examine and you get any extra information. You can call up your radiologist and most of them will give you a will be more than happy to give a reread of that of that scan. The, the interesting thing is back in, there's a specific hip test which is called the ligamentum teres test which basically stresses the ligamentum teres and it's, again, it's only been in vogue for the last 10 years or so, if, 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 if that. Mm -hmm. um, and he had that after round 11, he had a positive ligamentum teres test but we sort of, I don't know, sometimes if you get a, a negative MRI scan result, you sort of discount that diagnosis and the fact that the corticosteroid didn't help him but the, 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 in the end, it was what he had. Now, this, this, unfortunately, this video doesn't run. And what we see at the start is that little thermal probe, which is, well, how do we point this to? Yeah, just a little red. So there's the thermal probe up on, uh, up on this. This is the labrum here, and there's a little labral tear. And Stevie, in fact, had a little bit of a, a, a chondral, chondral softening, if you like, up in that, in, in that um, part of the acetabulum. What the video doesn't run, which is really sad, because it'd be nice to show you. But what, what basically Stevie had done, if I give you that, Tom, mm. basically his hip, he, he had had, had a, a marking contest in, in round 11, landed on his knees and done that to his hip, basically. And in doing that, he's basically crunched the, the acetabulum and the labrum a little bit, but he torn his ligamentum teres a, a, a little bit as well. And so he had this arthroscope. Um, so he had this arthroscope the night, the day before round 22. Um, he and I sat down and worked out a, a fanciful sort of rehab program. He played the prelim final and played really well in the prelim final and then played the grand final and didn't play that great but kept Stevie Baker fairly, fairly um, busy and then won himself a, a premiership medal on the back of that. But uh, the interesting point of this is that you know, we have to tr trust our clinical acumen and we felt that he might have injured his ligament and teres and we, and, we, and we sort of got put off by the fact that the first MRI scan was reported as being normal. And it was only when we trusted our clinical acumen the other thing is that it introduces the concept of the acute hip injury. So if you've got a morphology of, a, of an FAI which is asymptomatic, you can get a little acute impingement incident, okay? And then you can do damage to the labrum or the chondral surface or the, or the ligamentum teres or, or a variation thereof. So we had a guy, I think the next season, who came down from a marking contest and had a, a sort of a, an impingement episode and hurt his hip and we knew he was in trouble pretty much straight away. And so six days later, he had an arthroscope down in Hobart and we thought he'd torn his ligamentum teres and he had a little bit, but in fact, what he'd done is basically stripped off his acetabular chondral surface, most of it, um, in one fell swoop. And, you know, so again, this concept of the acute hip injury and, and thankfully the surgeon had enough um, nows to put down tools and to have a chat about it. And we talked about it and then the surgeon put a fibrin glue behind the back of the... Um, the chondral surface and it seems to take a little bit and stick down. Now he's going to be in trouble, he'll probably have a hip replacement by the time he's 34 
and he's uh, he's with a lot of informed consent decided to keep playing footy and he's still playing footy down there um, for Geelong but the, just the concept of the acute hip in impingement that can happen okay it, you can get a, an acute hip injury which if you don't have access to the video replays and, and the video analysis you may, may miss it so Um, there's no cost, I don't think there's any cost, cost ramifications. They often do a bilateral wide view for starters and then they focus in on the, um, which is most of the places that I, that I order radiology from do that. But it is helpful, it's just that side by side comparison which is really helpful. Yeah. No, I just, I just put down um, left hip MRI scan, query ligamentum teres tear, query acute impingement, query labral tear, and then these guys take care of it. Yeah, it depends on the protocol that the particular radiology service, service does. I was just showing that if you do have access to the images in terms of um, with, uh, with because a lot of the radiology services now have got, you know, you can get it on your phone or your computer and actually look at the images. It's just whether or not you're looking at them and then if you are going to bring something up and start looking at through and going through the scan yourself, then it's worth actually having a look at that, um, of that wide view because it just helps you compare to both sides. You know, it's the old spot the difference. You know. So an anatomically, like back in the olden days, we thought the ligamentum teres was a was a, a mode of getting a little bit of blood supply to the femoral head and probably wasn't that clinically significant. Um, the, an anatomically, you can see up here where it um, attaches to the transverse ligament on the inferior aspect of the notch and it inserts into the fovea on the medial aspect of the femoral head. Um, as I said, until about 10 years ago, we really thought it was clinically insignificant and there's, there's one hip surgeon in Melbourne who still refuses to believe that it exists and doesn't even look at it when he scopes his, his patients, even though he's quite a prominent hip surgeon. So there's even a variation in terms of, you know, the people on this side of the arrow and that side of the arrow and that's really interesting. Um, yeah, and that's the, that's the function of the ligamentum teres. It is, it, it is an intrinsic stabiliser and I've got a couple of patients who have got a, an absent ligamentum teres who have really bad chronic pain from it because they just, it is actually quite an important stabiliser of the hip joint and, and resists subluxation. I had a case way back in the, in the early 90s where a guy basically launched into a torpedo punt and kicked at 65 metres and his leg went dead on him. And then he progressively got more dead leg syndromes from kicks of less and lesser distance until we worked out that by pulling on his hip joint or pulling on his, on his foot under an image intensifier and he goes, that's happening now. And we took a picture and his femoral head was coming out by a long way. And he had a full ligament and Terry's tear. And I believe he, his, he ended up with a hip replacement a few years later. Yeah. Um, yeah, so you can read the function is taught in external rotation, adduction and flexion. And so... Um, it's got some nerve fibres, which is why it's painful. Interestingly, Mike Pritchard, who's a surgeon down in Hobart, he used to work in Melbourne, but he's now, now um, in Hobart. We send a fair few patients down to Mike in Hobart because he's very good at what he does. He touches ligament and teres with his femoral probe and the adductors go, go crazy. And so there's a real obturator nerve innovation of the ligament and teres, which we see every time he touches the ligament and teres, the adductors spasm up, which is really interesting. In, I had an interest in obturator nerve entrapment as a cause of groin pain about 20 years ago and we had a whole bunch of patients who got better with a, an obturator nerve release. But I'd love to go back in now and see how many of them had hip pathology at mm. the same time. Um, so yeah, it supplies blood supply to the femoral head but that, that becomes less in adults' hood. And yeah, it, distribu it distributes the sinoidal sinu fluid around the, uh, the articular cartilage. Um, so yeah. Um, so what we're trying to look for the best, uh, the gold standard for an MRI um, study of it, it's a difficult one to look at. It's bunched up into the, into the um, acetabular fossa. It's all, it's, um, 
It's often, uh, it's got a, a wavy morphology. Um, so it can be difficult to see a little partial thickness tear, but that's where we're looking at the fat sat sequences, just to see if there's any, uh, any bright signal or a cleft that you can see. Um, the gold standard would actually be doing a traction uh, MR arthrogram, but that's not, you know, it's not um, really possible um, in, a, in a busy practice, um, particularly if there's not high clinical suspicion. Um, and it's just a, a general uh, look at um, uh, a general look at the hip with uh, you know with clinical notes of hip pain. Um, in the end, once again, it's, it's whether or not that's going to be symptomatic um, as well, and then also whether or not it um, fits with the uh, with the overall clinical picture. Um, uh, but what you are looking for is a tears. The the most common at the fovea. Um, and you can often see uh, less so adjacent bone edema, but you can quite often see acetabular fossa edema. Uh, there's classifications, as we can all see. There's a partial tear um, here. Uh, we've got a complete tear here. We've got just roughening and, and delamination. Um, seen here with some chondral loss and cystic change. We've got avulsion with a little bone fragment with an acute uh, tear, and then we've also got absent. Uh, lig teres, which Chris was talking about before. Uh, here's just some uh, other examples of it, and we can see this is actually these are actually from a paper that was uh, did traction and uh, did uh, MR arthrogram. So you got extra fluid in there, and you're pulling the femoral head out. So I'm not sure whether or not these studies were actually causing these tears. Let's hope they weren't. Um, <laughs> but you can see that there's a, uh, a partial tear here. You can see that this uh, the ligament should be a nice. Um, thin black structure. It gets a little bit um, grey and a little bit uh, thicker as you get towards the fovea, but this is just way too much here, this globular high signal here. Uh, here you can see a complete tear, there's nothing here attaching to the femoral head, and here you've got a tear but it's, it's atrophied as well. Um, and there's, uh, oh sorry, this is actually an absence uh, image, so you can't actually see the, the, the fovea itself is quite hypoplastic, so you can't really see it. There's cartilage overlying it, uh, and there's just a little bit of fat in that acetabular fossa. All right. So can, can you fix it, or is it not repairable? A, a full uh, I'm not actually quite sure. Um, John O'Donnell has done something in the order of 12 ligament and tears reconstructions that he's got a technique that he uses and so his, his numbers are really small at the moment. I think that we, I think they think in the world it's been about 25 in the, in the whole world so far. Um, I've got a patient who's due to get hers done middle of August um, but yeah like so, so they're doing it and they've got some quite good results. If, if, if they think it's causing dysfunction and chronic pain then it's worth having a crack at. Yeah but yeah the numbers are pretty small. Yeah. Um, so, so this is basically um, a couple of cases of, um, and we've had a couple of cases of both of these pathologies of Collingwood this year. We had one guy who had, did have acute pain with kicking in a game and sort of kept going but then had ongoing discomfort, which is this one here. We had another guy who basically just decided he had a sore anterior hip and hadn't, couldn't remember any incident, but it was getting worse and worse with kicking as well. Um, the first case played the game out and got through. The second case was sat down in the VFL at three quarter time, I think. So we'll run through some of those and have a look at them. So this is the first case. Um, this is what he showed up with, which is, oh, Tom will go through the radiology. Uh, so we've got six consecutive images here. Um, this bone here is the uh, iliac wing. Uh, we've got the iliac fossa here. And as we're going down, we can see the hip joint coming in. So this is kind of from superior to inferior. 
uh, and we can see once again, as I was saying before, look at that white stuff on these dark images. Uh, and that white stuff is edema and fluid, and we can see it here in the iliacus muscle on the inside of that iliac fossa, and it's coming down. You can see little bits of muscle fibre disruption, a bit of fluid. Uh, it continues down. We've gone uh, underneath the... Uh, we're getting down towards the inguinal ligament, going over the hip joint, and you can still see that there's abnormality here. So this is a, uh, an iliacus strain. Uh, this unusual kind of flame-shaped appearance here is actually the bursa, the iliopsoas bursa. It's really quite a complex um, structure. The way I kind of uh, uh, put an analogy for it is, is that if you get a cupcake, you know, the cupcake papers, and you folded it over in half, and then you kind of crunched it up a little bit, and it was a little bit like a uh, crunched up cone, that's kind of the way it, it, it sits, because it's got the, all these uh, leaflets that um, sit on and around those, uh, the the tendon fibres uh, and the distal musculotendinous junction of, of both iliacus and iliopsoas. And there's often, uh, well there's definitely usually two, but sometimes there can even be a third tendon slip. And you can see those three tendon slips here. Um, and the bursa there sits between them to allow for a slightly different um, movement between those, um, those tendons. Uh, and reduce the friction. And I think analogous with the, the shoulder, the subscapularis bursa, that you see that communication between the shoulder joint and the subscapularis bursa in cases of um, capsular restriction. The same with the psoas, um, iliopsoas bursa, like it, it communicates with the hip joint in mm. I think 50% of cases. So you can have hip pathology that drives the bursitis. So again, clinically, we have to be aware of that. Um, yeah, interesting case we had uh, a little while ago. Um, you had this explosion of fluid arising from the hip going up, uh, up into the uh, iliac fossa and it was all this fluid, it was this angry edema, it, was, uh, it looked like a, a, a multi-loculated kind of fluid collection or cystic mass um, and on imaging it looked quite alarming and, uh, and it was raised that, you know, could this be an aggressive cystic neoplasm, a metastasis or a primary sarcoma and actually it turned out that this patient just had really, really bad hip degeneration, it irritated chronically irritated his iliopsoas bursa and essentially it had become really thickened edematous um, and the, the, the wall of it had become rubbery and thick and it had extended right up into his, his pelvis. So uh, it's interesting the mimicking pictures you can get sometimes with, um, with imaging. Uh, so there we go with all those, uh, those findings there. Uh, the last picture there shows that the uh, tendon was intact and wasn't um, tendinopathic. Well, the, the bursitis is often an overuse injury rather than a, an acute injury. This, this, this particular case was one where the guy kicked and actually felt something happen and, and the bursa got inflamed because of that. But the, the sometimes it's, it's, hard to, um, it's, it's hard to differentiate the muscle strain. That's where the radiology really helps you because if there is just an, an isolated iliopsoas bursitis, then sometimes um, a guided injection is a really good way to treat it. Um, and we've seen cases of people who, who with a, on a dynamic ultrasound, they hip flex and the... the, and the, the um, the psoas tendon actually flicks over like that, or the, ten the muscle muscular tendon junction actually flicks over like that. We've seen cases of the snapping mm. hip and, and those sort of really nice cases like that as well. So sometimes ultrasound is more, or dynamic ultrasound is more specific than, uh, than MRI scan. Mm, definitely. Um, and that, um, yeah, exactly as Chris says, as this tendon comes down, uh, the iliacus tendon, um, it, there's, you can see that the uh, psoas tendon uh, can 
be closely opposed, and as he says, they can they can flip just at the level of the hip joint, um, irritate the capsule, uh, mimic you know labral pathology or intraarticular pathology. But in the end, it's going to be a mechanical irritation from those two tendons uh, not gliding nicely over each other. Uh, here's a similar injury, but this time it's psoas. Um, again, you've got um, you've got some fluid and some uh, a small amount of fluid in the in the bursa, but here you can see a little disruption of muscle fibres around that uh, that psoas musculotendinous junction, little tendon here, and you can see that edema and fluid <coughs> in the in the muscle further down. So we had a case of that, uh, Collingwood this year. Who, who was in the VFL? He felt that hip pain, anterior hip pain. Um, didn't have an incident, but was sore and kicking after that, and got sat down at three quarter time. And basically, the radiology helped us work out that that was what the, what the diagnosis was. So he was treated aggressively, conservatively early. So a lot of rest early in the, in the week. We had a number of things he had to achieve during the week. He, he did a lot of main training on on Thursday and Friday, and actually played in the AFL with without pain. You know, seven days later. So the the radiology helps us go. Well, hang on, we need to, to unload this dude early in the week and get him back later in the week. And and so. I think the Aliaka strain missed a week, but the, mm. but the guy who had the psoas strain actually didn't. Um, and psoas is a, is a really cool muscle. Psoas, like, it, it has attachments to T12 all the way down to L5, and it comes off the transverse processes and the, and the, and the, and the uh, intervertebral discs and runs like a, like a big scotch fillet anterior. And if you look at an MRI scan from the sagittal view, you see how far it actually swoops and how much it stabilises the anterior hip because of the way it sort of curves almost 90 mm. degrees around the hip joint. Um, we used to hassle Dr. Pike a lot with um, psoas sheath injections. We used those a, a fair bit in the olden days, didn't we? And we could cure groin pain, back pain, shoulder pain with, with psoas sheath injections. Um, but no, it was just, it's, it's another armory that we have available to us if we've got recalcitrant cases of groin pain or, or hip pain with psoas sheath injection where we get the radiologist to put a, a needle onto the anterior and in David's case, posterior sheath as well. Mm. And basically strip the sheath of the, of the, of the psoas muscle and it can be... Yeah. So a very, very good clinical sort of tool to have. Uh, and just some examples here, just fluid in the bursa without the, uh, the, the muscle fibre disruption around that musculotendinous junction. Um, so that you can just see this fluid. So these are cases of, um, you know, isolated bursitis. All right, any questions? Well, they are, yeah, because of course often they'll have concomitant hip signs as well. But in these cases, you've got pain, pain with hip flexion, both in the extended and the flexed position. You've got tenderness off in the anterior hip. Um, you can palpate psoas from the abdomen, or in sort of basically in, in, through the abdominal cavity, you can palpate psoas, and contrary to popular belief, you can actually palpate it and feel spasm and feel tightness and what have you. So, you know, I think in the, in the psoas case, that's what we thought had happened. The iliacus, we weren't, weren't so sure, because I think the iliacus strains are probably less common. But you know, you, with, with a bit of good clinical acumen, you can work it out. Yeah. All right. Uh, case four. So this, so this is just a typical. This is a, a fanciful case. This isn't the real case, but but you, but um, an athlete footballer. I think there was a case on the weekend of, of someone who had this happen to them, where they basically got hit. Um, on the side of the knee causing, so often it's, it's, it's when the, the foot's planted and you hit on the lateral side of the knee causing a valgus stress and causes acute pain. And the, we've all read about O'Donoghue's unhappy triad, which I think is the medial ligament tear with an ACL and the medial meniscal tear. And they, well, I guess if the, if, 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 if the medial ligament sprain goes hard enough through the, through the, the medial ligament, then you can, can get an ACL injury as well. But this is just a guy who ends up with, with localised medial pain 
um, some feeling of laxity. They often do feel really unstable when they've done this injury themselves and the signs are that you've got some pain, with val some pain and instability with, with valgus dressing um, and some tenderness on either the femoral or tibial attachment of the MCL. So radiologically it can be very helpful. Um, and yeah, as Chris said, there was, yeah, there was a big injury in the AFL um, this week, almost identical case to this. Um, but um, so essentially what we're looking at, once again, look at the black, the black sequences. Here we got the, this is what we call the PD sequences. These are anatomical, okay? So they're giving you an idea about your structure. And what you want to see with all of these is that the black lines are essentially the cortex or ligaments or tendons, okay? Your, your, fat, your bony, uh, the, the marrow edema is, is a grey colour uh, and your fat and your joint fluid is also a grey colour. But your, your, your black structures, your tendons should be jet black, your ligaments should be jet black without a, by and large, um, and uh, they should be nice, taut, uh, uniform cylindrical structures. And then, so if we look at the fat sat sequence or the water weighted sequence, we can see all this edema around here on the medial aspect involving that medial collateral ligament. Okay, so this is the superficial band here, and we can see that it's got a wavy appearance and it's actually come off. Uh, down, down uh, lower, uh, and then it's got it's uh, it's also got some tearing of those uh, the deep components of it, um, which go from the meniscus to the femur and go from the uh, go from the meniscus down to the tibia. Okay, so you often hear in the MRI reports superficial and deep components of the uh, of the medial collateral ligament, and he's got a high grade tear here. So just showing you those. Well, this is a, a axial sequences here, um, and just to try and show you. All right, so here's part of the uh, patella tendon, and this is what a, 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 a patella tendon or ligament. You should see it as nice and jet black. Okay, so that's a good example. Here's your PCL, jet black. Okay, here we've got the problems. The fat sat sequence shows us that the uh, the problems involving the medial collateral ligament here the adjacent patellofemoral ligament. And on the anatomical sequence, we can see that it's all ill-defined and gray. You're not seeing those nice jet black fibers, okay? It's not a uniform structure. So we've got um, partial tearing of this uh, medial patellofemoral ligament, the uh, medial collateral ligament. Uh, and then this is further distally. So we're down below the level of the knee. We've got the, uh, the head of the fibula here, the proximal tibia. Uh, and then we can see that there's a number of structures here and this is essentially the pezanserine uh, tendon insertion down at that anteromedial aspect of the uh, proximal tibia uh, and we've got our medial collateral ligament here that's completely come off the, the uh, tibia um, and you can see that it's actually sitting proud of the pezanserine tendons. Now the va vast majority of medial collateral ligament strains don't need surgery but a certain subset and this is it um, needs orthopedic fixation. It's a bit like that steno lesion in the thumb. Has everyone heard of that where you get a tear of the um, uh, MCP joint in the ulnar collateral ligament? It sits above the, uh, the inserting tendons there and it can't heal. So this is the same thing that happens here. So that's where it just to, just to flag with you that a distal high-grade MCL uh, injury at the knee uh, should have an orthopedic opinion. Um, so this is the MRI report, um, and so that's what we've all talked about. But interestingly, one of the other things is that we've got 
another part to the conclusion that talks about patellofemoral maltracking. Um, so this is a young patient. They've already got some chondropathy. They've got a low-lying patella and they've also got some dysplasia. So it's interesting that when we go on and look back at those pictures, we can see that there's a bit of uh, chondropathy over the central patella. We've got a big, flat, dominant patella facet and a, quite a uh, sagittally oriented um, medial f uh, facet of the patella. And you've got this flat trochlea on the, uh, on the, um, at the distal femur. Uh, so this isn't sitting well and you're getting uh, increased chondral wear, okay? Um, we can also see the short patella tendon. So we just, when talking about patellofemoral maltracking, um, there are a number, again, this is, a, this is very much like femoroisotabular impingement and MRI reports are increasingly uh, reporting this uh, because I think a lot of the orthopedic surgeons are realising that they used to try and um, uh, you need to get in early management I think with this to prevent the chondropathy. It's no good trying to deal with chondral loss uh, uh, later on. If these are young patients that are showing cartilage loss early then you need to get uh, an opinion from a specialist in the area just to kind of help them uh, uh, manage them so that they can try and prevent that cartilage loss um, because it can be quite a disabling condition I mm. think. But then, but then the conservative management, the old Jenny McConnell back in 87 when she published her um, paper on patellofemoral taping medially, which has became all the, all the vogue for a long time, and then using that to then retrain the vastus medialis. And probably these days we've probably moved away from just the oblique fibres of vastus medialis and getting them sort of getting them conditioned. And now we're probably more into getting the quads in on, on a, as, as a whole conditioned and do that. But, um, but yeah, so, so there is that conservative management of these things as well that we can, can throw in there. Um, so this is what, in comparison to what we are talking about before, uh, here's a more normal appearing uh, patellofemoral joint. What we see here is a nice V shape between the two, uh, between the patella and the trochlea. You want to see essentially equal sized uh, facets. The lateral side is always going to be a little bit bigger than the medial, but you want to see them getting approximately close to each other. You want to see that this, uh, so the things that we look at for trochlear dysplasia is the inclination angle and that just essentially means the V-shape, okay? Uh, facet ratio is the size of the facets and it can also be um, uh, put to the patella morphology and then also the depth, okay? So you don't want too flat a patella, you don't want too flat a trochlea. Uh, then we also talk about patella height ratio which is essentially where the patella says, now in the last case he had a low-lying patella so it was sitting down here. This one's high, okay? Uh, Alta is high and Baja is short, but essentially uh, there are various measurements that you can get with that. But uh, you, eyeballing it, you can see here that when the patient's in extension, this trochlea is not really articulating with, um, with, the, with, the, with the, this patella here is not uh, ideally, or it's only half of it's articulating with that top of the trochlea there. You want to have that sitting further down. Okay, so that's just in terms of when you guys are looking at your x-rays, they're coming with some anterior knee pain. Uh, whether or not it's been reported or not, who knows, but uh, if you see that, then it at least can be raised and it can start going through your head. Um, and then, as Chris was saying there, here are all these medial stabilizers, and that's just where this links into that other case. So this patient's already got, it's got signs of patellofemoral maltracking. They've got chondral 
mitochondrial loss, but they've had an acute injury where they've torn off the distal end of their medial collateral ligament, which the medial patellofemoral ligament attaches to. And so you're going to have unopposed, um, unopposed pull of that, those vastus medialis fibres and really um, uh, exacerbate that patellofemoral maltracking. So this is, although it's a, a reasonably simple case on the, on the on the face of it, it gets a bit more com complex when you, uh, when you um, uh, go through it and see all the uh, repercussions there. And back in, um, back in 2011 at Geelong, we had a case where one of our players in the prelim final, the, the aforementioned gentleman who had the, the league terrace tear in his hip, um, basically had a valgus force inflection and dislocated his patella. So he had a pathology, if I can borrow the pointer, he had pathology that which involved this sort of area here. So he had a beautiful video which showed the kneecap <coughs> just popping out laterally and come back in again in flexion. He had some imaging which showed a nice bone bruise on the lateral aspects of the femur where the patella had sat for a few seconds. Um, he had some significant tearing here and he and I had a conversation on the Sunday night after he had his imaging on the sat Saturday or maybe the Sunday morning. And the conversation went along the lines of, mate, you're, you're, not, you're not, a, not a really great chance to play next week in the grand final, but this is what we're going to do. We're going to try and achieve this, this, this and this. And, you know, the good things are that you're, you're stable in extension, so you're not unstable in extension, you're only sta unstable in flexion, and you've got some things we can probably help with local anaesthetic if we have to. And at the end of the conversation, he goes, Christo, you know what I'm going to do for you this week? And I said, no, what's that, Stevie? He goes, I'm going to enhance your reputation, which is pretty funny from coming from the footballer. And sure enough, he, he kept on achieving things on the, on the Wednesday and the Thursday and the Friday before the game, and he kept on achieving stuff that we, we asked him to achieve, and he played the grand final and kicked four goals too and played a pretty important part in his winning the, the premiership. So, good case. We thought... Yeah. Yeah. Pretty, pretty much, we, 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 we treated him with some, um, we got a bit, because he was quite swollen on the inside of his knee and had a fair bit of edema, so we actually treated him with some hyperbaric chamber treatments in the first few days, so he had to track up to the Fortner Hospital and <coughs> the John Fortner Hospital <coughs> and do that, and the hyperbaric treatment doesn't, the it's not about the oxygen, it's about the actual pressure, so they go to whatever it is, 20 metres deep, and you actually get a really good effect on the swelling, so he got the knee that started to function pretty well quite early. Um, the Wednesday we, we gave him a little bit of local anaesthetic and made sure we could make him feel pretty good so he would run. The Thursday he took part in modified main training, he did some agility stuff and down at Cardinia Park it was quite, an, you know, it was quite a, a topical discussion as to whether he was going to play or not so we had two helicopters above us as he was doing his agility test on the ground and he got through his agility test and pulled up okay on the Saturday morning. It was almost disappointment for me, I thought I was really hoping he wouldn't be able to play because there's less stress if he didn't play. But he, you know, he came out and we did what we had to do and he, he played in the grand final. But so we just... Uh, and that's you know a principle of rehabilitation in anything like this. If you have to set the goals for the patient, and only once in my life have I ever, there's a guy called Craig Lambert playing for Victoria, and he was a, one of the Richmond guys I was looking after at the time, and we actually gave him some criteria to meet to play the game against South Australia, um, and he achieved those things. But we had a gut feel he wasn't right, so we didn't let him play anyway, which is one of the dumbest things you can do as a doctor. You know, set them the criteria to do, and then go, actually no, you're not right anyway. But um, so, so basically you set the criteria for the rehabilitation. If they achieve them and they fail on the day, you've got, the, the, you've got the, 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 your criteria wrong. Um, but in this case, we had our hearts in our mouths for the first couple of quarters, but in the end it proved okay, it went well. But you didn't take him? Uh, he did have some tape, yeah. He did have some tape. We did all that on a Thursday and a Friday to make sure that he was, yeah. Cool. So yeah, so I've re... I've really um, railroaded that, haven't I? But the, yeah, so the, the case issues, that's a high-grade tear of the MCL. Um, 
the medial patella stabiliser has got an intermediate tear. And as, as Tom said, the important part is that the, there are some MCLs that require a surgical, at least a surgical referral. And I think we're probably these days becoming have a lower threshold for using surgery to, to repair the anatomy. And it makes sense, doesn't it, if the, if the anatomy is um, deranged, certainly if, the, if some of the fibres of the MCL are sitting where they shouldn't be because of some in the pair's tendons or whatever, it makes sense to actually repair the stuff rather than leave it the way it is. Okay, so this is another case. This is a Collingwood guy. Um, and he presented, having had a knock to his shin one week and then the next week at the MCG, he pulled up really quite moderately sore in his, in, in his shin um, on the right-hand side. Um, and we got some, an MRI scan and it looked like this. And from my eyes as a sports physician, it didn't look that spectacular. He looked like he had a little bit of bone edema and had some marrow edema as well. Maybe Tom might like to take you through that. You can see, you know, Tom, take. Yeah, sure. Yeah, go through, now, through the um, radiology. All right, so here we've got a coronal section. This is the um, uh, this is the tibia here. You can see the ankle joint down below. So we're kind of the distal distal third of the, the lower leg. We're just going from the hip to the knee down further down, as you can see with these cases. Um, and this is the fat sat sequence. And again, we're looking for bright stuff. Now these are these are difficult. These are these can be quite subtle, uh, particularly if you kind of go through it. But this is you know there's there's real there's real edema with this one. Um, you can see that there's peristil edema here, which is this white signal just sitting on the bone signal. And this also shows a bit, of a, a, a bit of a better example about what we talked about in terms of cortical bone and medullary bone uh, from that previous case. This is jet black, okay? So that's your thick cortex. That corresponds with what you see on an x-ray of the, of the tibia, yeah? And you can see that it kind of tapers down and becomes a little bit thinner when you get down to the metaphysis. And then this grayer signal, which has got fat in it, which is satted out on these fat sat images, these fluid sensitive signatures, sequences, um, has also got some high signal in it, okay? It's not linear, it's not a vessel, it's ill-defined, it's edema, okay? So this, radiologists, we don't have a whole lot of contact with patients and we kind of think of this as pain <laughs> when we see this kind of white, white signal. Um, you can see that there's edema and fluid and periosteal thickening on the anteromedial aspect, so this is an axial section <coughs> on the anteromedial aspect of the, uh, of the tibia, and then there's this bone edema there, okay? So they're the findings that we saw. So this would be, this would be a kind of an intermediate grade stress reaction if you're looking at, the, uh, uh, at a grading system. Um. Yeah, so we, we, we thought that, we told the club that we thought he'd be about eight to 10 weeks before he played again, and we, We'd said we'd treat him clinically and we thought we'd probably rested for about four weeks. And we rested him and he didn't appear to get much better. He was using weight-bearing rest. He wasn't on crutches, but he wasn't getting much better. And at six weeks, we thought there's something fishy going on here, so we thought we'd scan him again. So this is like the, the patient not having run for, for six weeks. And as you can see, the, the bone edema... Yeah, everything's um, got worse. Everything's got worse, which didn't, which didn't make sense, which made us start thinking, oh, what are we dealing with? because um, we had told the club that he'd be back at eight weeks and it was six weeks down the track and he wasn't looking any like playing anywhere near soon. Um, so we got a CT scan um, to have a look at the bony morphology because often the, the MRI scan is a little bit like the old bone scans used to be. It shows you where the pathology is and it shows you the, the metabolism of the bone but doesn't necessarily show you the bony architecture properly. So we got a CT scan and it was looked like this. And so similar pictures to what we saw on the MRI, but interestingly, so MRI is fantastically sensitive for soft tissue edema. Um, so, so edema in general, soft tissue structures. Um, you can see difference between cartilage and ligaments and all of that. 
um, muscle, you can see musculotendinous junctions, all fantastic. What it doesn't do well is cortical bone because it's just black. And if we go back to this previous image, you know, you're not really getting much detail of that in the, in that, in that, uh, uh, in the actual cortex. It's just black signal, okay? There's no differentiation. As we go here, all that we've really seen on this one is that there's some extra cortical thickening here, but there's a lot more edema. So I know that, as Chris says, there's something going on. When you go to the CT, you can see this little linear line here. So there's actually a stress fracture there. You can see that you've got some periosteal bone growth here. Okay, it's just, a, it's just not the usual sharp, uh, sharp line. Uh, but then there's also endosteal new bone growth. Okay, so that fracture line's going from <coughs> the inner to the outer, so the outer to the inner cortex. And so you've got new bone growth at both sides of that cortical bone. Okay, it's trying to come back. Here we've got a vertically oriented stress fracture through that, through that. Uh, tibia. If you go back, if you go back to the uh, two images, um, yeah. So just below the arrow here on the right side, is there any irregularity there uh, with the Y? So is that something related to stress fracture? No, the, yeah, this one. Uh, in here? Yeah. Or right. here? No, the right. Yeah, this one. In in there. So that's that marrow edema. So that's what we're seeing here. So that's that's the actual sequence. So that ill-defined high signal there yeah. is the same as that. That signal something thing. that we see on the edge there, the line? Um, up there, there or? There. Oh, just there? No, the other side. There? Yeah. Uh, you would have to correlate that with the PD sequence, uh, the anatomical sequence, to see if there was actually anything there. It's not a great resolution. Um, you don't get uh, fantastic resolution like you do on the PD sequences here, and you just see whether or not there was anything there. But I, 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 my impression is that um, my gut feeling is there's not much. Uh, that, that doesn't mean anything. That's not a, uh, a fracture there. So, so we actually got pretty scared by this because the guy's, the guy's MRI scan findings have got worse over six weeks with rest and what have you, and he had a significant nocturnal ache. And so we, and also the, the report of the original CT scan report was said it might have been suggestive of an osteodosteoma, which is a benign, a benign tumour of bone that can cause stuff. So we actually ended up getting a couple of opinions and an opinion from a, a really good tumour surgeon from St Vincent's just to make sure and he w wasn't sure whether it was in fact a, um, whether it was in fact a, um, a benign tumour or whether it was a stress reaction or a stress fracture but in the end we got another scan six weeks down the track which again made it more apparent that in fact it was a vertically orientated stress fracture of the tibia which is, isn't that, that, that common I reckon as a sports physician having worked in footy for almost 30 years now. Um, you know, I don't, well, I, uh, one might have seen me, but I haven't seen it or recognised it, I guess. But So this guy, having been told he'd be, be playing again in eight weeks' time, ended up missing the rest of the season. Um, and he did slightly get better with the, with the right amount of rest and what have you, and we did a few other sort of, we used a prolia injection to try and change his switch control alt to lead on his bony metabolism, which helped his pain a fair bit, but probably didn't help the time frame of his, of his uh, injury. Um, but that was a bit more apparent at, mm. at 12 weeks down the track. The vertically orientated ones do that, and if you look in the literature, they actually they actually take a long time to heal. They they take anywhere between three months and, and you know five months to heal up properly. Um, whereas the normal stress reactions, which are the normal compression side fractures, usually if you if you unload them and use a little air splint or a little some, something like that, they actually go all right. And they they tend to get back to running at around the, the eight week mark, if you treat them aggressively conservatively early. But this is one where we thought that's what we had. Six weeks later, we ended up with a much worse looking MRI scan that made us start getting panicky about tumours and things. 
and then in the end it turned out that it was one of these vertically orientated stress fractures of the tibia. Would a more common scenario be that in the 20 year old who wants to play a football and keeps training, would that not be I think at, at our footy club we'd, we'd hate to think he was doing that off, off site. He wasn't, he was, yeah. Yeah, they do. Yeah, but he's, he's a pretty he's a pretty good young young kid. He got back played AFL early in the season and did his knee at training, and so he's now got an ACL injury now. But he's a, he's a he's a he's a fantastic young kid, and he would do what we he did exactly what we asked him to. The real world, you'd probably, yeah. The real world, the, the reality of the real world is, I think Peter Larkins had a patient who had a navicular stress fracture who was a runner, and Peter had put him in a cast for six weeks, non weight bearing, and at three weeks, Pete saw him running around the tan, and he'd taken his own cast off just to test it and see how it was. <laughs> so, in the real world, they're often not quite as compliant as you'd like them to be. No. <laughs> All right. Uh, just talking, this is, uh, although this is a kind of a classification or grading system, essentially it's just showing you how the changes um, uh, develop. And this is what we see on MRI. So with the, you see a normal, normal axial section through the, through the tibia here. Uh, the first thing that we start to see generally, and there's nothing kind of 100% true, but generally the, the progression of changes is, is that you'll start with some peristeal edema, okay? Then uh, as, the, as it progresses, you start to get marrow edema, Okay, and then the marrow edema increases, and then you start seeing cortical changes, and then and then the uh, and then the fracture line develop. Uh, so essentially, that grading system is just the progression of the changes. So people are talking about low low grade stress reaction. That is different from a high grade stress reaction possible fracture on MRI. Okay, and there's no doubt clinically, if you get them early in the piece and you actually do the radiology and you, you get them very early when they've only had their symptoms for a few days, then you can alter the, the time course of their, of their treatment. You know, they might be three or four weeks as, as, as opposed to six to eight weeks. Um, so the, the radiology, again, is, is quite clinically useful, coupled with the clinical acumen and stuff. Uh, and see, so here's a, uh, a different case, uh, just showing what you see right at the start. Okay, so we see a little bit of peristeal edema, but there's none of that bone marrow edema. Okay, so this is your, this is your, your, your shin splints, and this is a great example of that. Okay. Which is a terrible term, actually. <laughs> Shin splints is like calling it Bruce, isn't it, or something like that. It's not, it's not really a, a, a pathophysiological term at all, but anyway, right. it's what yeah. people call shin splints, yeah. The differentiation from the previous x-ray, because the previous x-ray also, uh, previous MRI also had periosteal edema, it had the narrow edema, yeah. because the previous film had, a, had that uh, fat-sack yeah. sequence that showed the... Um, look, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, look, if you if you actually went through and you had the the whole sequence that you could look through, this peristeal edema here is going over you know a twenty centimetre length compared to the the subsequent case where it would only be probably two centimetres. Here, yeah. that that would only be a, a small amount. Um, but again, essentially, the good way to think of it is that you're getting bone stress. This peristeal edema or, or, the, or the endosteal edema underneath is essentially just showing where your stresses are, okay? There's extra, extra fluid there. The, bo the bone's remodelling uh, and it's trying to grow and we know that it grows from the medullary side, the, 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 the endosteal side and the periosteal side. That's where all your osteoblasts are. So this is where that activity is increased. 
when you've got it on both sides, you just know that you've got transcortical stresses. Okay, so that's where it's up, up regulated to rather than the bones just reacting on that on the outer side. So, so in terms in terms of a clinical classification of shin pain, we, we have in, in the book Brutner and Khan, we've had a clinical classification that we've used for a long time now, which is basically a Venn diagram with three interlocking circles and the pathologies are compartment syndrome bone stress and inflammatory stress, okay? And we try and put any patient with shin pain on that, the, the inflammatory stuff being the, the, the typical shin splints where the, where the patient has pain running initially but it warms up and they get through their session okay, then it's a bit sore afterwards. The compartment syndrome where they get that crescendo build of shin pain where it starts off being okay for the first four or five reps and then it gets worse and worse and worse as they go and often they have to stop because of their pain and, and then the bone stuff which is just sore the whole time and hurts with every impact. And we, so we try and put our patients on those, um, on, on, on that on that, that sort of Venn diagram of, of, of shin pain. Um, anatomically, what we do know is that a compartment syndrome, which is, so you've got the compartments, you've got the anterior compartment, you've got the lateral compartment, and you've got the deep posterior compartment. The deep posterior compartment at this level, I think, consists of tib post deep, flexor digitorum longus, superficially, and, and flexor halicis longus. And what tends to happen is that with increasing exercise, if, if there's a little bit of fascial tightness in through here, with increasing exercise, the compartment tries to swell up but the, the but the the fascial compartment is too tight so there's an increase in pressure in in the, in the actual compartment itself now what that causes is muscular pain in, particularly in the anterior compartment it causes muscular pain that typical claudic and um, muscular pain but it also causes a, a exercise related shin pain as well because of the traction of the fascia pulling on the on the bone okay and so the compartment syndrome is a cause of shin pain and it does cause it so interlocks with the bony stuff because it causes bony, a bony reaction and a periosteal reaction and it inter interlocks with the, the inflammatory stuff. But the way we often treat these is by doing a compartment release where the, the surgeon goes in and does, takes off the disease periosteum off this angle here, um, releases the, the fascia over the, the flexor digitorum longus, goes in and, uh, and finds tibialis posterior and actually does a decompression of that as well. And those patients get back to running at um, about six weeks and Joel Selwood had that done at the end of the 2007 season and had no shin pain since. So think of compartment syndrome as a cause of shin pain, or as, a, as a cause of the spectrum of shin pain. That's fair enough. Mm. Okay. How much benefit do you get from Prolia? It's, it's funny, we've used, we used to use permidronate infusions but the patients got too sick. We used to do, the, the, one of my colleagues down in Geelong had a a protocol down there which was three hours of permidronate infusion and three coronas while the patients down there we used that on a number of our players down there and in a couple of cases it was quite dramatic like they it's almost like pressing control alt delete on the bone metabolism so when there's a lot of bone edema sometimes it can be a real pain relieving thing and we've had a fair bit of success with that both in osteoarthritis pubis we had one guy who had a patella bone edema um, and we've used it in, the, in a guy who had a recurrent navicular stress fracture as well so, um, so we've had some success with it but it makes the patients feel like crap for the next two days. They feel like they've been hit by a tram and they've got flu and what have you. So the prolia injections are probably less dramatic in terms of the side effect profile compared with the... Efficacy is Yeah, efficacy is probably not quite as good as permidronate. So I, I'd probably, if I had a, a desperate case, I'd probably still go to permidronate and the three coronas, I reckon. <laughs> so this is basically the case we just presented, which, which is an unusual case, but it was um, where we thought we had a clinical and radiological diagnosis and then we had that clinical time, time course and we rested the patient, he got worse with time and it turned out to be a, an unusual stress fracture compared with the, the usual ones we see. So this is the last case which is basically um, a 47 year old 
athlete, um, an amateur football player, retired with post-lateral ankle pain and reduced range of motion and with instability. So often we see these, these guys, these old weekend warriors who've played 30 seasons of footy and stuff. And, and they've had a history of, of injury um, to their ankle. They've had a history of multiple inversion injuries and, and the sequelae of that. And I don't know if Thomas will take you through the radiology of that. Of course, I could have given you an x-ray, but as I said, I like MRI. This is the, uh, the correlate of the, uh, of the lateral x-ray. Um, and I guess what I wanted to draw your attention to, we're obviously not showing the thing, I wanted to highlight the, the bits, but you would see this on x-rays all the time. It's an Ostrigonum, okay? Um, whether or not that's a previously ununited fracture of a posterior process of the talus or it's an actual accessory ossicle, um, uh, I'm not quite sure. But um, And then we've also got here the sinus tarsi, okay? And this is a PD sequence um, where we've got uh, fat is similar, similar to that, it's kind of that light grey. Um, so here we've got fat in Kager's fat pad behind the, uh, the ankle. We've got fat, fatty marrow. The sinus tarsi should be filled with fat signal. Okay, and we can see this big blob of black, black tissue in the middle of it. So as we go forward, uh, here we are on those fat sat sequences again, and where are we seeing the, uh, the, the bright signal? We're seeing it a bit at the dorsal aspect of the talonavicular joint, uh, but we're seeing quite a bit here in the sinus tarsi, and we're actually seeing some bone edema in the, in the roof of the, in, well, in the talus, which is the, um, uh, the roof of the sinus tarsi. And so this is just a, a sequence of images going along. So we've got scarring on the sinus tarsi, we've got edema, and then we've also got uh, edema, bone marrow edema above it. Um, so this is a case of sinus tarsi syndrome. Uh, some further images. Here's just showing the sinus tarsi. Here we've got the talus, we've got the distal tibia, um, and, uh, and then we've got the calcaneus here. And you can see that there's this funnel-shaped uh, structure, the, the sinus tarsi that sits between those two bones. Um, and that's the kind of image that you get on the x-ray. It doesn't look quite as big as when you, um, as when you see it in coronal section. Uh, but here we've got all these ligaments here. It's got this disorganised scarring and this is really quite prominent. This is as bad a case as I've seen um, over the years. Um, and then on the fat sat sequences, we can see all that disorganised hypertrophic. So this is what we'd call hypertrophic scarring. So it's got bright signal, but it's disorganised and thickened and it's scarred. So it's edematous and scarred, scarred tissue. Uh, and then here we've got some cystic change in the roof. So not only have we got edema, we've got cystic change, which is when all of that scar gets there and fills it up, uh, you get uh, synovial proliferation into the bone. This, this is quite a, an advanced case of, case of this. Um, and then besides that, we've also got a uh, subtalar joint and then we've got this ostrigonum, which has got a little bit of bone edema. Uh, it's got surrounding soft tissue edema. It's got a little bit of bone edema in the talus um, and also in that ostrigonum. So we've got some posterior impingement here and we've got some sinus tarsi. So if, you, so if you go down, back down to the Australian Ballet School and you go and see the girls working out with the Australian Ballet Company, you, the, about 50% of them have got a little scar on the outside of their ankle and that's where they've had their ostrigonum taken out. Because they, they work on point and demi point, they all get posterior impingement and it's, it's, it's a real um, occupational hazard of being a ballet dancer. The other thing with the, the sinus tarsi syndrome, they can be acute, so you can, they can be a cause of the difficult ankle after an inversion sprain where they get an inversion sprain, they get edema in their sinus tarsi and then if they're particularly if they're pronated individuals then they try and rehabilitate and they have that that lateral ankle pain and that can be a, a, a sequelae of the acute ankle injury 
and you can get a synovitis injury as well. So the high jumpers, any high jumper who's jumped about two metres or higher tends to get a sinus tarsus syndrome and it's a biomechanical thing. The high jumpers tend to come in on a curve and they tend to plant their foot like that and they jump over in a Fosbury flop type style. And if they're biomechanically a little bit flawed and they tend to sort of splay their foot out when they take off, they can compress their sinus tarsi. And if it's a consistent biomechanical fault, then they get a sinus tarsi syndrome. But from our perspective, it's a very rewarding um, condition to treat with an injection because the sinus tarsi, you can find it anatomically just about a centimetre inferior and anterior to the uh, lateral malleolus. And you can touch the medial malleolus, just put a needle all the way through. And you can actually sort of squirt your fluid through the other side if you want to. <laughs> but it is a very rewarding injection to do the sinus tarsi inje injection both for sinus tarsi syndrome and for cases of subtalar joint dysfunction where the subtalar joint's different than it should be and is causing problems. <coughs> so, yeah. Um, and it kind of brings up that whole idea of ankle impingement. And um, again, it's a, it, it, uh, I guess we're, 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 what we're looking from a radiological point, uh, point of view is, is are there areas around these joints, and in this case the, the, the ankle, uh, that's either causing soft tissue or bone impingement. Okay, so it can be soft tissue, it can be bone, often it's going to be a combination of the two, uh, particularly if it's been around for a while. Similar to those stress fractures we were talking about before, the body adapts. So if there is a bone budding on bone, the soft tissues adjacent to that are going to get thickened and scarred, they're going to become edematous, uh, and then you're also going to get spurring, and, and spurring's the main, the main uh, <laughs> thing that we see radiologically, and particularly on x-rays. Uh, you'll often hear it um, in your x-ray reports. There's a bit of spur in there, there, there. It's, it's, uh, it's up to you whether or not, um, really, are we going to say, oh, that could be a matter of impingement or else our x-ray reports for an ankle will start getting um, a few pages long. But uh, essentially, if you hear about spurring and it correlates with where, you're, where you think that the, pa the patient's got pain uh, and they're limited in their movement in that area, then that may be uh, as that may be the first sign of kind of bone impingement, and there's probably going to be some soft tissue impingement as well. So here's just another couple of cases. Here we've got some anterior and posterior impingement in a dancer. Uh, so here we've got some prominent bone spurring at the front of the uh, tibial plafond. Uh, you can see some soft tissue edema there. Uh, if you blew this up, you'd be able to see some fissuring in this cartilage. So this impingement causes some. Uh, uh, roughening and defibril uh, and fibrillation in that cartilage there and you can also see a bit of a bone spur here um, and at the back here again we've got some bone edema between that os and the uh, and the uh, back of the talus with some surrounding fluid just another case here um, here we've got uh, we're just looking at the lateral aspect of the angle this is a sagittal section and we've got the uh, perineal tendons coming down uh, and these tendons should be nice and black. Now, where can I try and point it out? Sorry. Oh, so here, here's a normal. Uh, sorry, where are we? Here's a normal tendon here, but you can see this tendon becomes grey and mushy. Okay, so that's softening of that tendon. It's getting uh, it's getting uh, impinged between the uh, perineal tubercle and the tip of the uh, the lateral malleolus. Interesting on the fat set sequence, we can see that there's actually some edema in that. This is a young patient, the growth plates are unfused. Uh, so this is quite a significant problem for this young youngster. Um, and we can see some adjacent soft tissue edema. So they've got bone edema quite pronounced in that growth plate. The actual growth plate itself is probably all right. Um, you're not worrying about, uh, but you could imagine that if there's enough bone stress here in this lateral malleolus to cause bone edema, 
then it's not going to be far that if this, pa if this patient keeps on going on with these activities or it's not in, if there's not an appropriate intervention, then uh, he could potentially get some growth plate injury there. And uh, finally, sometimes you might hear in your reports about posteromedial impingement or a POMI lesion. Um, essentially here we've got, we've got an, uh, an axial, so here's the medial malleolus. Uh, as I said before, ligaments are meant to be black. This is the deltoid ligament or the medial collateral ligament. Here are your flexor tendons, one, two and three. Uh, and here you've got this grey mush here that's actually quite bright and inflamed on the uh, fat sat sequence. Okay, so this is hypertrophic scarring of the deltoid ligament. Often you can see this as a, uh, after an inversion injury um, because the talus abuts up to the uh, undersurface of the, uh, of the medial malleolus and, uh, and causes quite a profound contusion in it. The, its response, if it's not um, adequately treated or sometimes if it's just got an abnormal response to that, it can become quite hypertrophic and, and scarred. Uh, and therefore then you can get increased impingement there but also uh, tendon dysfunction down the track. Any, they're just some examples. Um, any questions? Um, some surgeons still do it, yeah. Yeah, I don't think it does. I, I think if there's, if there's genuine patellofemoral maltracking, the, the surgeons will probably do some sort of transfer, patellar tendon transfer operation where they take the patella, um, well, the tibial tuberosity and just transfer it medially a little bit. Um, but, yeah, they don't tend to do as many as they used to do. Yeah. Sometimes they also do reconstruct... Oh, there's a few surgeons in town that are doing... Um, kind of reinforcements of the medial patellofemoral ligament and actually shortening it and strengthening it to mm. do a little bit of a pull. But it does, again, it's very quite variable in terms of where that person's trained, their, their, how their outcomes have been, because there can be different, uh, different thoughts with it. It's still developing. I guess another example of that, um, we didn't have a case of it today, but... Uh, plantar fasciitis. Victoria is one of the only places around the world where they actually do releases in young active athletes if, they've, if they develop plantar fasciitis. Um, there is that old story of Robert Harvey who had quite a bad, you know, prolific runner uh, who, was it before a final? No, it wasn't. I can't it was remember. The big it. game, but I think he was leading up to some pretty important, but he just wanted to play. And he had this, he was just getting increasingly disabled from this plantar fasciosis or plantar fasciitis. He had partial tearing through it and he got up on a table and jumped down and snapped it and was, uh, was back running uh, really well a, a few weeks later. Um, and uh, it's trying to get out there in the, in, the, in the literature, but there's a lot of foot surgeons here that swear by it. They say that they've been doing it for 15, 20 years on really recalcitrant. Uh, um, plantar fasciitis and you know we know how how long it is to treat it conservatively with you know do injections work at all um, but uh, if you can release it often these patients can get back and, and running within a number of weeks. Yeah, yeah. Um, in rheumatology when we get patients with plantar fasciitis we've gone away from injections a bit to mm. offloading the tendon mm. by doing calf stretches mm. as opposed to um, releasing the plantar fasciitis and extending the joint out. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. We also use autologous blood injections a bit these days. PR, oh, really? Autologous blood injections yeah. and PRP, which yeah. theoretically is supposed to induce a healing response. In the, um, I think it just basically causes an inflammatory response, yeah. and you know it's probably that more that. But it, it, it certainly helps or can help in recalcitrant cases. So, yeah. to the age and etiology you Typically, a 50-year-old female might come in with that. Mm. They really mm. respond well to steroids. I've been given for donkey shoes. Yeah. yeah. And I've had really good feedback. Yeah. Particularly yeah. if you go in and out, and of course, the sort of a, a dry needling yeah. technique is the same time. Yeah. 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 Yeah.